This is Ed Cohen, publisher of GlobalBusinessNews.net and your broadcast host on Global Business Radio. Coming to you today from Uxbridge, just outside London and San Diego, our very special guest is Mr. Andrew Elliman, head of European Business Development for the AGS Group. He's also known as a motivational speaker and adventurer. While Andrew Elliman supports clients by creating mobility solutions revolving around their personal, international, and domestic needs. He has been involved in the global mobility industry since last century, since 1986, working with mobility managers and HR teams to create and implement policy solutions for their employees, relocating both locally, that means in the UK, and globally within the same organization. So Andrew Elliman has become famous lately because he has climbed Mount Everest. That's right, and not just once. So let's welcome Andrew Elliman. Thank you, Ed, for the nice introduction and looking forward to giving a talk now. Okay, well, first of all, before we get into some heavy-duty talk about relocation and mobility, when's the last time you were on a climb Okay, so that was literally about five weeks ago. I was actually on Everest trying to break the world record for the highest dinner party in the world. Now, when you say a dinner party, that means you were with others? Yes, there was a whole team of us. There was 10 of us in total that were going off to break the world record. And the idea of breaking the world records, one, it has to be the highest, obviously. So the highest, flattest platform in the world is actually on the North Coal of Everest. And when we say break a world record for the highest dinner party, you have to have certain things in place. So you have to have, obviously, a dining table, chairs, tuxedos. You have to have wine on the table. Uh, you have to have a three-course meal. So there's a lot of logistics just getting up to the North Coal, which is at 7,000, uh, just over 7,000 meters on Everest. 7,000 meters. Well, that's almost 21,000 U.S. feet, right? That's correct. It's actually, when you're at 7,000, you're actually higher than every other mountain in the world, apart from the Himalayan range. So it gives you an idea of how high we actually was. You know, I've heard Himalayan pronounced Himalaya. So which is the right way? It depends where you're from, to be truthful. And I think this, this is something um, you hear around the world. Different people call it in different ways. But here in the UK, we say Himalayas. Elsewhere, yeah. it's, it's known differently. <laughs> yeah. Well, here in San Diego, it's Himalayas, too. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I want to ask you about the people in the dinner party. How many of those were let's call them geographically based helpers. What would you call these people? Okay, so we, we have a team of Sherpas. The Sherpas, um, the, whole, the whole reason for the dinner party, in a way, we were doing it for a, a charity called Community Action Nepal. And this is to help the mountain people of Nepal in the remote areas, to help them with medical centers, to help them build schools, etc. And it's something that I've been involved with over the last 13 years. And I've been raising money for a long time to, to help them. But the Sherpas themselves, if you, if you imagine the dinner table, there was the dinner table was actually in total, there was actually eight of us for the table originally, but we also had 
two Sherpas that we invited to be our guests on the table because it was very important to make sure that the Sherpas were at the forefront of what we were doing and the reason we were doing it as well. So the initials are C-A-N, CAN. Yes. And so that is motivational in itself, isn't it? C-A-N. Yes. Well, CAN is Community Action Nepal. It's actually run by uh, a guy called Doug Scott. Now, Doug Scott was the first Briton to officially climb Everest in 1975. And I'm lucky to say he's actually a very good friend of mine now. But he also climbed with Sir Chris Bonington as well, which in the climbing world, anyone who knows about climbing, these are two very famous people in the world of climbing. So you said you had this dinner party. And does that mean you wore a tuxedo coat over your outerwear? No, not at all. So the idea was to climb up onto the North Coal. And what we did was once the guys were on the North Coal, they actually then changed into these outfits because you can't climb in them as such because, one, they're not geared up for the weather that we was climbing in. Yeah, okay. So when you say coal, North Coal, how do you spell coal? C-O-L. And what does this mean? It's the name that was given on Everest. You've got different areas. So you have base camp, you have intermediate camp, you have advanced base camp. Then you have what they call the North Coal. So the North Coal is the the climb up onto the main platform on Everest. Then you have Camp 3, and then it goes up until you get to the summit. So we were climbing from the north side, from the Chinese side. Most people who climb Everest actually climb from the south side. So this was something that we changed to the north side because of the dinner party. And did you luck out with weather? Did weather impact your plans? Completely. So if I skip to 2015, we tried to attempt this in 2015. And I spent five years planning to go to climb Everest. And at that time, I was aiming to climb to the summit. And I was trying to look for sponsorship and I was trying to look for interest And what I realized was you needed something else. So one of the guys said, like, let's go for a dinner party and break the world record for the highest dinner party ever held. So if you imagine five years previous, we were looking to climb from the south side. And then when we realized we had to climb from the north side, from the Chinese side to break the record, we changed everything to the north side. Now, in 2015, after loads of planning, loads of training, getting the right team to do this, we were actually caught in the worst earthquake that Nepal had ever seen. And there's about 9,000 people died in total across the whole of Nepal. Mainly Kathmandu got the worst of it. But 14 people actually died on Everest that year when that happened. So we were lucky enough to get off with our lives and get back down. So three years later is when we went back to attempt the dinner party again. The summit itself, I was unable to do because of the cost. It was so so expensive to, to try and climb to the summit. It was easier to arrange and go for the dinner party, which was still a world record. But what we hadn't counted on this year, the weather was not as kind to us as the time before, even though we had an earthquake before. So there'll be times where if you look at most of my photos that I have, it's all of us in the sunshine and it's, it looks all cozy and nice and looks like we're really enjoying ourselves. But there was times this time when the wind blew the cloud over and we had severe snow at, at one stage 
And actually, when the wind blew, it was about minus 25. We were walking in at one stage and I had a frightening part where um, where my whole hand just froze in my glove. I hadn't put my mittens over my gloves, so I was just walking in gloves. And the Sherpa I was with actually took my hand and put it down his chest to try and warm it up to bring it back to life. So that was a slightly scary moment for me, but we carried on. And yeah, the weather was on and off. It was good one minute and then the next minute it wasn't so good. So it was an interesting thing to put yourself through. And I think the other thing that people don't realize as well is when we were at advanced base camp, which is 6,500 meters, your oxygen in your blood, you normally the oxygen in your blood is normally around 29% oxygen in your blood system. For us, it was only at 7%. We were breathing 7% oxygen into our blood. So you go through different symptoms at high altitude. So I actually didn't eat for four days whilst we were resting at advanced base camp. And it made me very weak. And when we climbed to six, seven, and we were doing some uh, training to get there and then come back. It took us four hours to get to, to this point from advanced base camp. And I was actually suffering quite badly with altitude sickness to the point that I was actually coughing up blood at one stage. I also was very sick at that stage and very tired. At one point, I just sat down, rested and found a Sherpa waking me up. 20 minutes later saying you've been asleep too long you've got you've got to come back down yeah so it was very very difficult if i'm honest well thank you for sharing that information and i'd love to see pictures where can our worldwide audience see your pictures okay so we actually have a, a website it's uh, www.everestdinner.co.uk and you can see all of the pictures all of the reports that came back also, we've had quite a lot of coverage in the national newspapers, uh, especially in the UK, being mostly a UK team. So we were actually in the Telegraph, we was in the Daily Mail, etc. And the Metro that goes out on the trains down here. So yeah, so we've been on quite a lot of different sites as such. But our main website is www.everestdinner.com dot co dot uk and you can you can see it all on there and also there's a if, if you're interested there's a, a sponsor page there as well so you can actually make a donation if this story fuses you to do so so yeah so we've had a lot of publicity from this as well so it's all been good and it's all for the charity as such so andrew i want to say that global business news dot net will make a donation and will help promote this can charity every oh, thank, thank you very much that's, that's uk and we will help promote this concept uh worldwide through our audience network once we get this published and broadcast so i want to ask you uh one more time just to very quickly what was it that made you want to break the world record for the highest dinner party on everest what was the real reason uh, everyone likes a dinner party i think <laughs> and, um i think i think for us it was um it was a challenge we were looking for a challenge to do on everest and you hear lots of stories of people conquering everest and getting to the summit and uh, i was one of those as well I, you know my my dream was to stand on top of the world and uh the idea sort of came about because we realized that you know we wanted to do something for a charity um, but in order to grab people's attention and do something different, um, 
nowadays if you say you're climbing everest it's not enough for a lot of companies they, they want to see that you're you know they want to they want something different so um a dinner party sort of made sense to us you know no one had ever done this the record before that was some guys had tried to do this in the himalayas and and reached i think six thousand six thousand seven hundred meters or something like that so we knew we had to get on to the flattest platform in the world and that was the north coal of everest um and yeah so the first time we we did this we just thought what a great idea you know um it it looked a bit crazy um it was very crazy um and and you know how far could we take this and the first time that we did this we actually had a celebrity chef from the uk actually not only designed the food but he actually joined us on our first attempt to climb to the north coal so um this is a guy called sat baines um he's he's quite he's quite famous here in the uk he's on tv a lot and um and so he got very involved and the only problem he had when we got to base camp last time he actually got altitude sickness um so we had to get him evacuated off the mountain um very quickly you have to when someone gets altitude sickness um he had water filling up on his lungs so we had to get him down within 24 hours for safety so so um this time round when we did it again he said look i i can't do the actual um I can't do the actual uh, attempt, but he said, I will cook the dinner for you. So he, he's a Michelin two-star chef, and he now is the proud owner of the highest dinner party menu that he designed for us and cooked the food. So so it, it all had a, a huge impact in what we were doing. But again, you know, the record was there to be had. Um, uh, we don't think there's anywhere else you can physically do this because you've got to put a table and chairs out. So we 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 scouted around to see if there's anywhere higher, and um, we we don't believe there's anywhere that that anyone could break this record. Now I'm not saying it's impossible, but the logistics of getting table and chairs and all of this equipment up there is very difficult. So anywhere else would be even more dangerous, I think, for people to attempt. Well, I've heard of getting high for dinner, but this is out of the question. Wow. Okay, let me ask you about this guy, the chef. What kind of special foods did he prepare? So he, he did a soup for us for starters. Um, uh, it was a, a very simple soup, obviously, um, something that we could have fairly cold. Um, and then we had a, a lamb tagine for main course. Um, which it and, and the other thing um, with this the second time round, he ha he actually freeze dried it. So we we then had it. Um, it was easier for us to take, and then we boiled it up and made made the food from there. And then afterwards, uh, we had a, a special chocolate, um, uh, like a it's like a chocolate energy bar that was a, a pudding that we had this time round. The time before in 2015, he did pretty much similar to soup. But he actually had he actually made us a uh, beef bourguignon for main course and it, and it was absolutely gorgeous so yeah so it, it was and and the the pudding last time that he made or dessert he made last time was a, a chocolate popping chocolate candy ice creamy type thing and uh, again it was you know it was very nice <laughs> it's very nice but it, it's amazing because when you're at altitude your taste, your um, you, you go off food, you can't taste food. So it was very important that he got the textures right for us to be able to actually enjoy the food while we were up there. And it worked. It really did work. It was really nice. 
So I, I want to come back to Everest, but we have a global business audience involved mm-hmm. with talent management and the mobility functions. And I'd like to ask you about work. So I assume your company gave you time off with pay? Yeah, I mean, to be truthful, um, this was this was a, a journey that started five years before I actually went off to do Everest the first time. And it's so strange because the first time I went to do this, I was actually working for another global mobility company. And I remember going into the office saying, I've got the opportunity to go and climb Everest. And will I be able to do this? Will I be able to take 10 weeks off in five years time? And would you pay for me or possibly sponsor me? And the company at that time, they said, yes, they said, that's fine. And it was funny because a few of the people in the office laughed because I, I, if you looked at me, I wasn't the kind of person that went off and climbed Everest. I didn't look the right fit. I didn't look like a, a climber for a start. And obviously, it's, it costs a lot of money. It was like $50,000 to climb Everest the first time. So, and obviously, the, you, you know, it's not something I've got <laughs> able to say to the wife, oh, I'm going to draw out $50,000 and go and climb Everest. So, so the first time around, it was a little bit funny because everyone thought I would never do it. Like, but then I had five years to actually plan and start doing this. Now, working in the world of mobility, the one thing I love about mobility, it does open the doors to everything because we know so many different people all around the world. And, you know, when you start telling people the story, they started to buy into the story of what I was doing. Now, probably about two years into this, I was actually approached by the AGS group to go and work for them. And part of my contract even was they actually wrote in my contract that they would give me the time off with sponsorship and I could go and climb Everest and they would let me take the 10 weeks off to do it. So it all became very simple for me to make that transition. One of the things I hadn't realized was the actual chairman of the AGS group really liked the idea of what I was doing and saw the vision I saw. For me, I saw a vision of standing on top of the world. What he saw was, you know, I was very driven. I work in sales and he realized that, you know, in the AGS group, I would fit well, not just doing my sales manager role, but he asked me to be the UK sales director. And within six months of like doing this, I was then offered the role to look after the European side of the sales guys. So it was amazing. And I always say to people that when you have a vision to do something so extraordinary, to most people, but you have the drive and you can see where you want to take it. It was amazing to see how my career also was climbing. It was like I was climbing two Everest in in one go. And I think that actually opened doors quicker in the role I was in because I would go networking and people wanted to hear the story. Tell us about Everest. You're the guy going to climb Everest. You're, You're physically going to climb Everest. I was like, yes, I'm going to climb Everest. And I started doing talks in the mobility world and combining what I was doing on Everest. Now, obviously, after doing the first attempt and coming back, there was this huge story of, you know, I didn't just go and break a world record and climb to the summit. No, I went on the, on the mountain and got caught in the worst earthquake the pool has ever seen. And this whole story escalated. And Community Action Nepal, who, you know, I'm very close to, they were getting the publicity that I really wanted them to see, you know, and we were raising a lot of money for them at the time. So 
when we did the, the second attempt to do this, in the three years leading up to that, I was doing lots of talks. And through these talks, I realized that there really is a synergy between a goal of climbing Everest and working in sales and working in mobility. So I ended up talking at a lot of different mobility conferences. And I do what I call the seven steps to climbing Everest. And the seven steps are very simple. You know, one, you have an idea, right? The idea is like, for us, it was we wanted to stand on the summit. The seventh step is, you know, we knew that was the end game. You're on the summit. You've achieved what you want to do. It's that middle bit that if you follow the right path in any kind of walk or life that you do, you can make that path. So you have to make a plan, right? So you, you have the idea, you have the plan. Once you've had the plan, you then have to have, if you like, you could say you have to have the vision first, right? Then you have the plan. Then you have to make sure you've got the right team. And and if you look at global mobility, like it's, it's the same as putting a policy together. If you're a head of mobility and you're trying to get buy-in from everyone around the world, your team is critical to make sure that you get buy-in from all the different countries and make sure that you've got the right decision makers in that room as well and that you've got the buy-in from the top, not just from your level, but you need to make sure you've got the buy-in from everyone around the world. You've got to have the buy-in from the CEO all the way down to make sure you've got the right team. And that's purchasing as well. So, so there's a whole spectrum and it's no different to Everest. You know, when we climbed Everest, it was very important to make sure we had the right people on Everest. And people say, what do you mean? Do, do they have to be specialist climbers? Do they have to be the best that they are? And to a degree, yes, you do have to have those that know what they're doing. But also you've got to realize, you know, we're on a mountain for 10 weeks and 10 weeks in a tent where you most of the time you sit in the tent just trying to acclimatize. You want to make sure you're in the room in the room with the right people because you, you've got to spend 10 weeks with them. Right. And so you learn a lot about those people. So when I do the seven steps, I talk about, you know, how important it is to have the team. The other thing is, is, is making sure you keep things on track. If you're climbing Everest, we knew what we needed to do, but you need to make sure you keep everything on track. And that's leading up. That's the five years leading up to climbing Everest. So you need to make sure that your training's on track, your sponsorship's on track, what you're trying to achieve, you keep it all on track. And that's the same as any global mobility team if, if you're if you're planning to do a policy a tender if you're in sales you've got to have that strategy put in place and one of the other things I always say is it's all about knowing your limits as well so knowing your limits is is probably one of the biggest things to know on Everest is it on Everest if you don't know your limits you'll die and I am complete proof of that because the first time we tried it, we got caught in the earthquake and it, we had to get down. This time, I mentioned earlier that I was um, I was really not well at 6,700 meters. And the very next day, we were going to do exactly the same thing again to get to the wall, ice wall of the North Coal. And then we all we had to do is climb up the North Coal ice wall to break the world record. Well, for me... I couldn't do it. I had to pull out at that point because I just probably wouldn't be here now because I was physically exhausted. I, as I mentioned, I was coughing blood up. I was in a bad place. But the team that I was with, we, we'd arranged everything. And the team, it was very sad that for me, 
but the team i said to them you you carry on you you go up i've i've now got to come down the sherpa had said to me andrew it's life before mountain and he said i i can't let you go any further and at the time i was you know i was disappointed but i understood and and i think sometimes this is what i say to people you need to know your limits and i think sometimes if you're doing a a mobility policy you'll get buy-in from most countries or most regions but there's times when you're going to have to know your limit there'll be certain regions that will kick back they will say well no we do it this way so you have to find a, a compromise of how you manage that to that point and it's the same on everest and everest is exactly the same it teaches you so much and for me the whole thing on everest was people say to me really sorry that you didn't finally get to that north coal that you wanted to like uh, and i went well we still we the team broke the world record that's what we set out to do and for me i said i know my limits i've reached where i i you know I, i've stood higher than most mountains in the world and i know what it feels like i know my body was most fragile it's ever been and i said but for me i realized the two times i've tried to do this now all the time i thought the summit everest was my summit all the time i thought the dinner party was my summit as well and now i realize my summit is actually helping all those people in nepal i mean we've we've raised so much money for these people and you know the fact that we're now building four new medical centers in the remote areas of everest like up in the mountains these are for people that never get this kind of treatment so in a way i realized that sometimes things turn out differently but they t- normally turn out for the good so i do this whole speech about the seven steps and i found that it really helps in all kinds of business and i think ags group were fantastic in the way they supported they saw the vision i saw on everest and they've embraced it into the company now it's interesting because I, you know, I've given talks all around the world, like on my first adventure on Everest, and now I'm going to start doing it again. But what it has allowed me to do is open the door to so much more business for the group, but also it shows that we care. I mean, it was amazing the response I've had within the mobility world and how people now are asking me, "How can you help us?" I've always helped people to do this. But now I've got a real strategy to how you do it because the mountain taught me this. And I don't think you can, you can buy that anywhere. I think, I think it's very different to, to most people's approach. So I hear you say seven steps, and I've been trying to take some notes here, and I think I'm missing one. When it comes to the seven steps, you have the vision first. Vision's one. You have the plan is two. You then have the team. You then have the sponsor, right? And when I say sponsor, when it comes to mobility, you have all different kinds of sponsors. So you need your executive sponsor, your sponsor from high up in the company, your it could be anything from the your supporters within your group, right? So it could be HR managers, it could be talent managers. It, you need them all on board to to really push this through. But normally you you need it from the top to drive it in in your in your company and then you need to keep it on track there's also knowing your limits and then you have the summit got it okay i got seven here all right good so now i want to ask you some additional questions about ags 
So the company is very large. It's headquartered in Africa, correct? South Africa? Actually, we have our head offices is actually in Paris because it, obviously it's a French company. But we do have a big operation down in South Africa. We're actually quite unique in the world of global mobility because we're the only company in the whole wide world to actually have all 54 offices and warehouses in Africa, in all 54 countries within Africa. It makes us very unique. It's not just in our industry, but in the world. So it does make us very different from any other company. And we do very well in the African region, but we are global. So in total, we have 142 offices in 94 countries worldwide. The only place we're not is the US. So we work with lots of partners and agents in the US. And we've always worked that way because we have a lot of strong partnerships over the 42 years that we've been going as a company. But everywhere else, you'll find us. So a lot of the time, people don't even realize that we're in some of these countries. Obviously, a lot of the French colony islands we're in. We also have a project, the Caribbean 17 at the moment. So we're in area as well. But our main area is Europe, Africa, Asia. Middle East. So we really do have a real wide grip on global mobility worldwide. Now in Europe, the company also has some subsidiaries that do hands-on destination services, right? Yes, we do. So in France, for instance, what is the name of the group in France? In fact, in France, we still, we're still as the AGS group. Because we, although we, there's other companies that we're affiliated with and we have under the Mobilitas brand, they're separate from us. So we still do the relocation services through the AGS group for our customers. Got it. Okay. Well, it's yeah. very interesting talking with you. I really want to drill down and ask you what's next for you. Let's just start with that. And then I want to sum up and ask you some mobility questions. So what's next for you, Andrew? Okay, so I'm going to carry on with the charity work that I'm doing with Community Action Nepal because the Himalayas is very special to my heart. But for me personally, I've been writing a book for the last three years, which I'm hoping to have finished by December this year. It's actually called Everest, the five-year plan. And it's my story of how I got involved, how my career changed, how my life changed completely in that five years. And it just has a bit of everything. I think I think if you're into sales, you'll like it because it comes from a sales background. But also if you're just interested in, you know, how you can achieve something that to most people is impossible. And I just want to say to people, look, I was an ordinary guy and I had a vision to climb Everest and a dream, if you like. And I turn it into reality, even when there was times when people used to say, you've got no chance, you're not fit enough, you know, you know, you haven't got enough money to do this. And I proved them wrong. And not just once, but I did it twice. So I always like to push myself in that direction. So the book is aiming to be out in December and it'd be great to really give everyone an idea of how that was. And then obviously the account of what happened when we were on Everest and the earthquake and what it's like to feel the ground moving under your feet and the mountain falling around you. So I want to give the whole perspective. So there's a bit in there for everything. I think for the adventure types, the climbing types is something there. For the sales types is something there. Obviously, I'll be talking about the seven steps to climbing Everest. And I, I think there'll be a bit in there for everyone as such. And I'll be talking about like my career and how that changed as well. 
that's one of the things I'm doing. But I'm actually in the process now of looking for my next biggest challenge. So I'm just in the process of getting it all put together and how feasible it is for me to do. And in fact, I, I can announce it uh, on your show, in fact, because I haven't actually told anyone publicly yet, apart from my friends and family. But one of my things I, I want to do, I, I want to sh- show people that things are possible if you have the right vision and you structure yourself. And for me, one of the things I can't do, I'm 47 years old. I've got two grown-up children. I've got two grandchildren. And I want to prove to people that anything's possible, even as you get older. So although I'm 47, I can't swim. I've never been able to swim. I have a fear of water. I panic if I am out of depth within water. So I've always learned to, if you fall in, you you get out as quick as possible. So I want to overcome that, but I don't just want to learn to swim. So I thought that's too easy. I've actually signed up. I've already got lots of people who have interested this. I'm going to swim the English Channel. Wow. Um, and I want to prove to people that if you if you condition yourself right and you train right, you can do it. Although I'm absolutely petrified thinking of the idea, the statistics are more people have climbed Everest than they have swum the channel. So I like that. I like the challenge. So I'm going to do it in two years' time. Hopefully, you'll have me back on your show, and I'll tell you about me swimming the English Channel. So well, uh, I wish you well. Uh, you know, that drive me crazy thinking that there's things under the surface of the water that you can't see, but you know they're going to probably eat at your toes. The English Channel's not so bad, so there's no sharks or anything, but there are jellyfish. So I will have to swim through schools of jellyfish because you do it in the warmer months. They say that most people who try to attempt it end up doing it three or four times because we get quite rough seas across that channel. So if the sea changes, then I've got I've to get back onto the boat as quick as possible but hopefully if if all goes well i'll make it across it's in total it the the nearest part is 21 miles but they do say with the currents and the drifts most people do it in 24 26 miles and it the quickest it's ever been done was six hours and the slowest it's ever been done is 27 hours so hopefully i'll be there somewhere in the middle (laughs) like with the timing well i I wish you godspeed and and floaters I hope you, <laughs> you stay up <laughs> I, I'm calling I'm calling this challenge sink or swim <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know I'm I'm, I'm taking notes <laughs> uh, this has been a delight speaking with you and actually quite motivational Andrew Elliman that's really cool so how can people get in touch with you my friend Okay, so like I say, I'll be putting up another website soon all about the new challenge. But if people wanted to get in touch, LinkedIn's probably the quickest, easiest way to to get in touch. Or you can actually call through to the AGS group and I'll be happy to have a chat, tell you my story or help you with your mobility programs around the world. But the easiest way is probably through LinkedIn, I'd say. Well, this has been a delightful conversation with Andrew Elliman, all about himself and the charity, C-A-N, that's Community Action Nepal. So before I let you go, I got to ask you about the earthquake and the terrible damage that the people and the area suffered. Do you want to go deep on that for a couple of minutes? Yeah, I can do. Um, So the strangest thing I've ever experienced, we were... 6,000 meters, roughly about 
that height at the time. I was walking on a glacier moraine when we heard to the left of us on Everest, we heard this mighty roar coming down the mountain and we realized there was an avalanche to our left. And then all of a sudden, the, the solid ground that I was standing on, and uh, I imagine a lot of your listeners have been through earthquake experiences and will know exactly what I'm saying here. The solid ground just felt like I was on the sea. It just waved. And then to the right of me, there was a lot of ice pinnacles, and they all started cracking onto the right of me. And within 40 seconds, it was all over. At this stage, we thought, okay, this is not good. This is this really not not right but our only option was to walk up to advanced base camp and I will never forget this we walk into the base camp and there's all the Sherpas which we had taken from the police side to help us climb on the, the north side up the Chinese side and their faces and their, they, they you know we gave them a satellite phone to phone their homes or phone their, their wives and families and it was a very emotional time you know some of them had lost their family some of them had lost their houses and then others were you know it was just joy to see that their, their family was still okay and it was very surreal because at that point they said look we're getting reports that Kathmandu has pretty much crumbled uh, to the ground and you know we had friends there we you know we, we'd sent our celebrity chef to Kathmandu to the hospital because he had altitude sickness a few days before and there he was now stuck in Kathmandu thankfully he was okay but the devastation afterwards I'll never forget you know the news reports they reckon around 9,000 people died in that earthquake and it's really shocking when you you see the news the news report things and rightly or wrongly they report things for about a week and then it gets forgotten but the tragedy's still there and these houses, the ruins, like absolute ruins and and people, I don't know how you do it. One guy this time round, when we went back, one of the guys that was with us the first time, he's a film producer and he went to do a film on all the work and where all the money had gone from the charity last time of all the projects that they rebuilt these places. And he was in this remote village and he was chatting to one guy who really has helped to rebuild this whole village with the help of Community Action Nepal. And he said, how was it when the earthquake happened for you? And he said, my wife and my children were all on this hill and I just watched them disappear. And you just think to yourself, we're very lucky in the world that we live. I know sometimes we, we grumble, but, you know, but, but what, what, what comes out of that is this guy goes through this experience and now is like rebuilding this whole village. And, and he just got on with life. And it, and it's, it just, I, I can't applaud them enough. But that's just one story of thousands that are over there. And if you went to Kathmandu now, and I do advise people, you must go to Kathmandu, even if it's for a few days, just have the experience. They've really got on with life and rebuilt, as most countries do when these disasters happen. It's amazing the resilience of people worldwide. But it's just, I don't, I don't know. I'm very passionate about the country. This why I help the charity. The earthquake is something I, you know, if I shut my eyes, I can still feel it myself. I can't imagine how these people went through this whole thing, losing family, etc. 
when we was on the mountain and the Sherpas were using our satellite phone to ring home and try and get information, I remember we were sitting in a tent. It was about one o'clock in the morning and the team and I were just, we were dumbfounded by everything that happened. And then the satellite phone, the battery died. Well, at that point we thought, okay, we haven't actually phoned home to tell them we're okay. And my wife and my children all sat here for eight hours, not knowing where we was. They were watching the news. They saw what was happening on the news, people being crushed under tents in Everest. And they didn't know where we was. They knew we were there somewhere, but they didn't know where we was. And it's very bizarre because, you know, you realize what's important in life and you realize that, you know, family is, is very important, but also it's how you cope with things when, when it all happens. So again, going back to what happened in Nepal, how those people have rebuilt their lives and, and, and really aiming to do things like and get back on with not much money as well. It, it is sad, but but yeah, if you went there now, the projects that, that CAN were working on, they had quite a few projects that were damaged in the earthquake. They've rebuilt all of them. There's a hospital they've built for the Sherpas on the mountain. We as Westerners get to do these amazing things. And, you know, we ask these people to take us up a mountain. Unfortunately, what we see is if a Westerner gets really affected by altitude sickness then they'll get them down to a certain height and a helicopter flies in and takes them off and they're, they're taken to safety what you don't hear about is um, when sherpas get ill on the mountain they don't have helicopters like we had you know they, they don't get the support like we had i mean we we made sure that all of our sherpas were fully insured so we could get them down we made sure they all wore the clothes that we were wearing but you do see shepherds there in trainers. It's shocking. And so the hospital has been built for the Sherpas. So it's free for all of the, the mountain people and the Sherpas in the area. And us as Westerners, if you need that hospital, you're going to pay for it. Like, so we have to fund it some way. But it's amazing the work that CAN have done. They've rebuilt a school over there that's for the deaf. And it's amazing to get these children back into to the classrooms what it must have been like for them in an earthquake not being able to hear and yet the school was falling around them so you hear all these stories and it breaks your heart and I know it happens all around the world there's earthquakes as we speak you know we're hearing about everything happening in the world now and all of these people need help at some stage and if if you can do a little bit to help some of them I think that's 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 great a great story, and I want to encourage you to put a chapter in called Resilience and just bring that perspective, that focus. Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to have <laughs> Andrew Elliman on this show. And that's it from the UK, Uxbridge, and California, and San Diego. Thank you, Andrew Elliman. Thank you very much for having me on. Keep climbing, man. Keep climbing. <laughs> I and will do. And stay afloat in the English Channel. <laughs> you take care. This is Ed Cohen, publisher of globalbusinessnews.net. And really, what a wonderful show this has been. Thank you, Andrew Elliman. Thank you. Okay, over and out. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful day.